promises. Boris has broken quite a few of those today. Tell me, do, do these broken promises actually matter? Are they acceptable? Cross-channel migrant crossings, huge numbers again. Pretty Patel talking tough to the French. Don't make me laugh. And I'll be joined on Talking Pints by DJ and author Mike Reed. Trust in politics is absolutely fundamental. Indeed, it was a breakdown of trust in many ways that led to the Brexit vote. The fact that all the political parties said, yes, we should, of course, stay members of the European Union, and they showed themselves to be very out of touch, and many thought, frankly, just not telling the truth. Trust matters. And on issues like taxation, boy, historically, trust really matters. Think 30 years back to President George Bush, Read my lips, no new taxes. That was what he said when he got elected, and yet he put taxes up and got beaten the next time round. Now, the government, of course, can say and will say that the coronavirus problem was unprecedented, and it's because of that that they have to put up taxes. But, and this is really important, it was one of the very, very explicit manifesto pledges that was made back in 2019 and there it is clear for all to see that there would not be any increases in VAT, national insurance or income tax and today Boris Johnson has put taxes up because he, has, he hasn't just put 1.25% increase on national insurance, a 10% increase on national insurance for employees, he's also put that 1.25% on employers. So it's actually, for most working people, 2.5%. But something else that he's done that seems to have almost slipped through the net unnoticed is he's also putting on a dividend tax, a 1.25% dividend tax. Uh, and that affects... That will affect, of course... Many in the country who earn very large amounts of money in dividends, but it will also affect many, many of the millions of small businesses that operate as limited companies. And I think maybe he's going to get more grief in the next few days from his own backbenches on pushing through a measure that it seems to be anti-business. Anti-business with dividend taxes, a tax on jobs with the increased national insurance contributions paid by employers. And for ordinary folk, well, if you're earning about £30,000 a year, you're going to be worse off every year by about £250. And all of this happening in a country that already has the highest tax burden that it's had since Clement Attlee was Prime Minister. Yes, under Conservative Prime Ministers, we have since 2010 seen some large rises in tax. But it is a specific breach of a manifesto pledge. Tonight, we'll discuss, are there other ways that social care could be funded? Is this health and social care levy just another form of taxation that perhaps will increase over the course of the next few years? But the question I'm asking you is, do you find these broken promises acceptable? Please let me know what you think by getting in touch, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me now to dissect some of this and give us some numbers is Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Darren, give us some numbers first. Tell us how is the... Because there are two things here, aren't mm -hmm. there? They're raising extra taxes and dividends, as we've just discussed. 
I thought to begin with this was all to pay for social care. But in fact, it seems to have changed over the last week and it's now as much about funding the backlog of operations mm. on the NHS. So which is it? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Isn't it? We keep talking about this kind of social care reform and even though they're going to raise £36 billion over the next three years, £12 billion yeah. a year from this tax increase, the vast majority of that, £25 billion, is actually going towards the National Health Service, not social care at all. Sajid Javid, uh, very keen to point out today that when he was told the figures about the backlog of the National Health Service, it simply needed uh, more money. So the vast majority of that money is going to go to the National Health Service over the next three years. There is a question mark, and we haven't got a clear answer to this, what happens at the end of that three years, because this tax is not going to go away, does it then resort to trying to deal with social care, or does the NHS still eat up a big portion of that? Because, frankly... People have said it's going to take a decade to clear these uh, backlogs. Just in terms of the details of what's going to happen with the actual social care yeah. reform, yeah. this is essentially kind of Andrew Dillnott's report for slow learners, kind of what he suggested 10 years ago under David Cameron. Uh, that is that there is going to be a cap of £86,000, so at no point will anyone over the lifetime spend more than £86,000 on social care. However, that is not a guarantee that some people might still well lose their home. And then there's this talk about a kind of floor so that essentially you'll be able to keep £100,000 worth of assets, though that will be somewhat it means... But for middle-class homeowners living in the south-east, mm -hmm. uh, owning houses that are worth three-quarters of a million pounds or whatever they are now, this is very good news, isn't it? It is good news in the sense that you've got this kind of... £86,000 cap, so if you've got a £150,000 home, essentially you could see more than half of that value completely eaten up by social care reform. Yeah. But if you own a £4 million home or a £1 million home, it's still capped at 86000 So obviously the wealthier you are, the kind of more you benefit. Now, what was the government's kind of reason for breaking, as you rightly pointed out, another manifesto commitment? Yeah. Well, time and time again, Boris Johnson blamed it on the pandemic. Here's what he had to say in the Commons a little earlier. And of course, and, and of course, no Conservative government, no Conservative government, Mr Speaker, ever wants to raise taxes. And I will be honest with the House, I accept, yes, I accept that this breaks a manifesto commitment, which is not something, which is not something I do lightly, but a global pandemic was in no one's manifesto, Mr Speaker. Uh, so that was Boris Johnson talking earlier on, and I did say, you know, it's not the only one he's broken. Many would point international aid, you know, no longer at 0.7% uh, or 7% the government tried to do that. Yeah. You and others suggested the, the, the border in the Irish Sea, which he said was not going to happen. Well, we've been dealing with that for the last year or so. That wasn't a specific so. manifesto. It, it, it wasn't, yeah, but, but it was a kind of, kind of pledge. It's to, still a big deal, It's though. still a big deal. And, and then specifically, of course, um, on this issue also with the triple lock on pensions, which yeah. also, kind of didn't get that much publicity today, uh, was announced by Therese Coffey in the House of Commons. Now, to be fair to the government, it's a bit more understandable. Uh, essentially, at the moment, yeah. it, it, pensions are meant to raise by either inflation, 2.5%, or earnings, whatever is the highest. Now, earnings are running 7 8% between May and July this year. Frankly, the government, you know, that's an awful lot of an increase. It's, yeah, it's still a breach of, of, of promise, but, 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 but it but does they, have some mitigation. They, yeah, they're, they're yeah. suspended for a, yeah. a year, so and, there is a little bit of that. And there's obviously opposition on the Conservative mm. backbenches. We don't know how much. I suspect this dividend tax is where they're going to get some real stick. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Nigel, that having the vote tomorrow, 
Yes. So was it like, you know, there is no real chance for anyone to no. properly go through the detail. No. And is there, and where's the opposition well, party? Well, this is the other big question. Well, can you blame Labour? I mean, Labour in principle, their argument essentially is we want to see increased social care funding, yeah. we want to see more money to the NHS, we don't think taxing working people is the right way to go up. So let me get this right then. So the Labour Party are now for low taxes and the Conservative Party for putting well, taxes yeah, up. Not quite, but you can understand why Keir's in this problem because essentially, I mean, what Boris and I'd say would make Tony Blair blush. I mean, this is centre-left politics to a degree, which is, as you say, the highest tax burden since yeah. Clement Attlee yeah. um, and increased public spending funded through us taxpayers. But you're right, Labour's in a little bit of bind, and that's something that Boris Johnson prodded Keir Starmer about quite a lot, also in the Commons earlier. Chancellor, I was listening. Yeah. I was listening. But fiddling, and the Chancellor knows the numbers just as well as I do, he'll have done the sums and we've done them. Tinkering and fiddling... Tinkering and fiddling with the dividend won't do that. Instead, the government is placing the primary burden on working people and businesses struggling to get by. Uh, so that was Keir Starmer. It is pretty tricky for Labour to a degree because, as you say, they're in a bit of a bind about this. They can oppose it. Yeah. I suspect when it comes down to it, because this money largely is going to the National Health Service, lots of Conservative MPs probably going to roll over, even though they don't like this. But there are bigger, wider, fundamental questions here. We have Sajid Javid, essentially a Thatcherite. We've got Rishi Sunak, who's meant to be economically quite prudent. We know Boris likes spending money. Yeah. Who, essentially, are now presiding over a Conservative government, yes, and unprecedented Big times, government. Which is not only introducing a new tax, a permanent new tax, yeah. but also seeing, essentially, a bigger role for the state yet again yeah. than we've ever seen before. And those fundamental questions about what it means to be a Conservative yeah. will be asked by many of those backbenchers yeah, no, for the days, will. weeks, months to come. They will. So the vote tomorrow, come back and see us tomorrow. I will. We'll see the size of the rebellion. Darren McCaffrey, thank you. Now, I've wondered for years whether just pouring more money into the existing system was the right way of doing things. And I did, about, about a decade ago, I did suggest perhaps we had a look at insurance-based systems, and of course I was completely screamed down because I was going to be privatising the National Health Service and that would never do. Uh, all I was looking for was a better outcome and a better bang for our buck. But somebody who has done a bit of thinking uh, about social care, and he's got a very long record of being involved in this, is Lord Peter Lilly, former Cabinet Minister and Conservative member for Hitchin and Harpenden. Um, and of course, Peter, you served in Margaret Thatcher's administrations, you served in John Major's administrations, and you were the Social Security Secretary for many years. Peter, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening. Good to be here. So, we're just going to put more taxes. We've invented a new tax, which will appear on our tax forms, on our returns from next year. We're increasing taxes. Uh, we're putting a lot more money into the National Health Service. We've got a new formula for social care. But you've been thinking outside the box on this one, haven't you? Yes. Uh, there are various things Boris has done today. First, we've got a permanent tax increase, allegedly to deal with a temporary problem, the COVID backlog. You should never raise taxes permanently to deal with a temporary problem. There's a longer-term problem of the growth in demand for health and social care. To my mind, that can only come from a growing economy. And you won't have a growing economy if you load it with taxes. And this, all the other tax increases this year, uh, means we're now paying a higher of tax than ever before. Within all that, there's the specific problem of people fearing, uh, understandably, 
they may suffer the catastrophic costs of social care, eating up the value of their entire home, uh, and meaning they can leave nothing to their heirs. That's been a long-standing problem since 1948, since the service was set out, but growing as there have been more homeowners. Uh, to my mind, we shouldn't be taxing working people to enable retired people to pass on the value of their home untouched to their heirs. Uh, it's a natural thing to insure. Uh, when the Dilmot Commission was set up, he looked at insurance and said, you know, that would be the natural way to do it. It could be quite, uh, at first sight, economical. Then he found that the uh, insurance companies wouldn't uh, insure that because they were afraid government rules might change, that new medical treatments might keep people alive but frail indefinitely, and above all, that they wouldn't ever be able to persuade people voluntarily to pay an insurance contribution during their working life on top of paying for their pension and repaying their mortgages. So he and everybody else gave up looking at that. To my mind, that means that we still ought to be trying to find an opportunity to insure against this risk rather than putting the burden on the taxpayer, but better set up a state-backed company to do it because the state, after all, would be hedged against the risk of itself changing its policies uh, and let people um, pay for it, not by making contributions during their working lives, which you can't persuade them to do voluntarily, but by taking a charge on their house when they retire, possibly equal to about 10% of the value of their house. And in return for that, they will be know that if they do have to go into care, and suffer long-term care, they wouldn't have yeah. to pay for it. Uh, the same as everybody else. And the government will be, the taxpayer will be reimbursed when they die or so But Peter, you as a free marketeer, do you actually think government is capable of running its own insurance company? Well, I prefer it to be done privately, but if the alternative is it not being done at all, better to have a state uh, okay. back company doing it. Maybe once you've got it set up and running, then you can uh, privatise it, or maybe you can have it government backed, but run by a sort of consortium of insurance companies. That, to my mind, is a second-order question. What you shouldn't do is make the, the best the enemy of the good and say, oh, we mustn't do anything because it can't be a perfect pure market system. No, well, it's look, it is absolutely fresh thinking. It is fresh thinking. Um, it's, it's, it's a new angle for this whole debate. But, Peter, can I ask you finally, as somebody who is, a, I think, fair to say, political veteran, and you've seen a lot of general elections, you've seen a lot of Conservative manifestos... Uh, how much damage does breaking a very specific manifesto pledge on taxation, how much damage potentially does this do to Boris Johnson's government? It is potentially very damaging come the next election that people will be able to say whatever pledges in our manifesto are made, they are worthless. Yeah. And I can't remember an election when one party or other, the Liberals or Labour, weren't promising to put one on the pound, in the pound tax to fund more spending on health. And it's never worked at elections. It works at opinion polls. Ask people in theoretically mm. about it. They say, oh, yes, we pay higher taxes for more health. But there'll be other people who should be paying higher taxes uh, for health, not themselves. And when it comes to elections, yeah. they're not keen on the idea. And they certainly won't thank someone who's already done it. No, absolutely. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Well, that was Lord Peter Lilly suggesting maybe there's a different way of doing these things. And I must say, it was interesting to see 
his comments there, William Hague's comments earlier on today, and a lot of very senior Conservative figures thinking this really could do Boris Johnson a lot of harm because it comes down to that word I used at the start of the programme. It comes down to trust. And this was supposed to be a fresh, new, post-Brexit government, a government that put Brexit behind us and introduced a new kind of politics. And manifestos are very specific promises. Now, the migrant crisis, the channel migrant crisis, you may wonder why... I've not spoken about this much for the last couple of weeks. Well, the reason, of course, is that it's been... The weather has been dreadful. Persistent northeasterly winds in the English Channel making crossings impossible. Yesterday was a huge day. The Home Office have confirmed a figure of 742, although that is being met with a lot of scepticism by the Daily Mail and many others who thinks perhaps that was when they stopped counting. We don't know. Today is another... Very, very big day across the English Channel. But to my astonishment this morning, we see a Times front page uh, that made me laugh. You know, stop more migrants or pay the price, France warned. Pretty Patel getting tough with the French. Isn't Pretty Patel good at getting tough? You know, she makes these speeches. She says we're going to give long prison sentences to traffickers. We're going to give life prison sentences to traffickers. We're going to stop the flow. It's unacceptable. Uh, Dan Mahoney, uh, who is the senior figure in the Home Office in charge of special operations, makes the same speech time and time again. And what she's saying is, ah, we haven't handed over the £54 million pounds yet, and I won't give it to you unless you stop this from happening, completely ignoring the fact we've already given them £130 million, and it's made absolutely no difference whatsoever. So, pretty Patel, talking tough, don't make me laugh. But what is to be done about this crisis? And it is a crisis, um, and it's a problem for the government, because when people are asked what do they think are the most troubling questions today... It's now ranking third equal with the environment. Obviously, the health crisis and finance and the economy are first and second, but it's now ranking equal third. So this does have the ability to cause the government a very great deal of problem. Now, joining me now is Claire Pearsall, Conservative councillor in Kent and former special advisor at the Home Office. Claire, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening. So Pretty Patel gets tough with the French, and all I can do is just laugh uh, because uh, your Home Secretary uh, keeps on making uh, specific promises and tough pledges, and they don't really amount to a row of beans, do they? I think this particular pledge that came out this morning on the front pages is empty. It's empty words. It's not going to make a blind bit of difference. If we are expecting the French to help us police our borders, which is essentially what we're doing, yep. then withholding the money is only going to make this worse. So, I, you know, the French are just going to say, OK, fine, we won't have your money, we're not going to help you. So this will just get worse, we'll see more crossings happening. So what do you want Pretty Patel to do? I want her to go and work with the French. Uh, and it was something when I was at the Home Office that we did, and people may scoff at this, but you do have to go over it. You have to speak to them. You have to work with them. If we want some assistance, and, you know, the north coast of France is quite vast, so we did put in some money to help them get equipped to stop these crossings from happening. 
But you need to keep on with that diplomatic relationship. You need to go speak to shop owners, ask the French to go and speak to their shop owners, because where are these ribs and inflatable boats coming from in the first place? Now, I'm sure that they will understand that their shopkeepers will have a certain amount in stock, um, and that has gone up exponentially. So why are they working hard with that? I think the diplomatic channels are the most important, even though you wouldn't see results if, immediately. If the French will play ball, and at the moment, Emmanuel Macron seems to be very reluctant to have a summit with us. Um, there's much talk uh, with, you know, big, big things happening within the government today with their tax increases, national insurance increases, dividend increases, a big vote tomorrow, speculation about a reshuffle perhaps happening towards the end of this week or next week. Uh, and do you, as a Conservative councillor, want to see Priti Patel staying in that job at the Home Office, or is it time for somebody else? I think these positions need to be reshuffled from time to time. I'm not going to sit here and speculate as to if there is going to be a reshuffle and who should be in that job. I'm not the Prime Minister. He has got all of those MPs, some of them with some enormous experience. I think he has a lot to choose from. He needs to choose wisely. OK, that was very diplomatically answered, and thank you very much for coming on and joining us. Well, let's get a slightly different perspective on this. I'm going to speak now to Ewan Roberts, centre manager at Asylum Link in Merseyside, a charity supporting asylum seekers in the Merseyside area. Ewan, good evening. Welcome to GB News. Evening. So we've got probably now over 14,000 people uh, that have come into the United Kingdom over the English Channel. Uh, we've got a large number of people that have come in. And this footage, by the way, is today's footage out there in the English Channel, filmed exclusively for GB News. But, Ewan, we've also got a large number of people who've come in from Afghanistan. Um, how on earth, I mean, where on earth are we going to put all of these people? Because I know that four-star hotels have been filled up all over the country. I know that, uh, I think, a Pontins somewhere is being used. We've got former army barracks being used. We've got private residences being used. Where on earth in the Liverpool area are you putting everybody? Well, places will be found for people. You do, and it's a disaster. So you, you do what you can. I, I take issue with what you said before about uh, it being a crisis. It's not. Apart from the Afghans, there's no more refugees coming in over the channel than there has oh. been before. In fact, there's been fewer for such a long time. And we, 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 can't, we constantly get this the images of the boats in the news because they're newsworthy. But actually, over the pandemic, fewer people were coming in through the asylum process. So you've got to take that into account. <laughs> in but terms of the English Channel, a, in terms of the English Channel, it's 14,000 oh. this year. It was 8,500 yeah. last year. It was 1,800 the year before that. So in terms of the Channel, the numbers, are, the numbers are rocketing, aren't they? There's normally about 30,000 people claim asylum, and usually it's less than that. And actually, France takes over double the refugees that Britain takes. Of course. Really, what you actually need is a better agreement within the European Union, of which we are, of course, not part of anymore, to, to actually deal with the refugees properly, instead of having something stupid like Angela Merkel having to open the door to try to shame everybody into acting in a humanitarian way, when Germany took over well over a million refugees. Yeah. We have to sort these things out. Otherwise, all that will happen is people keep bouncing back to these headlines and going, oh, isn't it awful? And are you, are you completely relaxed? Um, because I think about what's happened in Malmo and places like that, which since 2015 have taken a very large number 
of young men, because let's face it, the vast majority of those that came across the Mediterranean and are coming into this country are young men. Are you entirely comfortable that a huge number of young men are being put into one city or another, are coming from a culture with very different social attitudes towards women uh, and many other groups within society. I mean, I mean, doesn't it concern you that this is leading to a huge cost? Not just the cost of housing uh, people who've come here, who lodge for asylum, who, even when it fails, uh, don't get removed, but, but also, aren't you concerned about a social cost here? No, I'm not. No? When, when we integrate people properly and we work properly at community cohesion, we get the benefits of all these things. I watched a guy, an Afghan man, Wahid, I can't remember his second name, who is a radiographer now and does telemedicine back to the, the war zones. Uh, people have set up their own businesses here. Guys who are clever, resilient, but just need an opportunity to get on. And our society benefits from them. People setting well, up restaurants. <coughs> people, people really contributing to this country. There's no doubt. Done so adversity. There's no I'm doubt. I'm really not worried about this, genuine... this issue yeah. you're saying about all these young men coming. Because yes. the people who get out of war zones and manage to escape from these places tend to be the fit, young and able. There are very few disabled asylum seekers. And there are very few women asylum seekers and very obviously very, so, very, few, very few child asylum seekers. About one third of, of the people in our place are female. <laughs> Well, you're not representative because 90% of those plus that are across the channel this year are young men. Uh, I, I have to say, finally, not a single person who's crossed the channel this year, not a single person, despite the fact many fail because they don't qualify as genuine refugees, not a single one has been sent back anywhere. Would, are there circumstances in which you think we should deport people or should everybody that comes be able to stay? Everybody comes that should be able to stay, but the asylum process should be very, very different from what it is. It's far too adversarial. And what you get then is you've, you've got somebody who's tracked halfway around the world and you go, oh, prove your case, which is extremely difficult to do so. Whereas if we had an inquisitorial system where you sat down side by side with people and said, let's look at this, you'd get a faster outcome and you'd probably right. get a better outcome. So and I if they, fa and the if they fail, the if they fail, should they, be, should they be deported? If somebody has, if you, there are, and undoubtedly there are baddies within the system. Where yeah. any system you've got, there's good and bad. So you have to have a, fight, a way of finding that out. But I right, and if we do find that out, should we deport them? Yes, you should. Good. Uh, and, but you have to take certain circumstances into account. All right. It, it's all right. very difficult to send somebody back to further danger, right? And I, when I look back at all these things where we've tried to get rid of people because of terrorist offences, I think it would actually be safer, you might say there's a cost attached with it, but there's a cost attached to everything. If they're in our country, we can control them and we can do the stuff here. And that's well, the way I would look at it. I admire your confidence, you and Roberts, and I want to thank you for coming on and putting your point of view. Well, look, folks, I always give you both sides of an argument. I think it's very important that we do it. Uh, but I'm in very little doubt uh, that Pretty Patel's position is now very precarious indeed. In a moment... We'll get Boris Johnson's thoughts on the new Taliban. Perhaps we've been too unpleasant about them.
A big breach of a manifesto promise as national insurance goes up for employers, for employees, and there's an extra tax going on dividends too. Does it matter that the government has broken those manifesto promises? Well, I think, despite the pandemic, it does. I really don't think that putting up taxes for employers, be it on the people they employ or the income they earn through dividend, is a good idea in a country that wants, that needs to get off to the races to pay for the kind of health care we're going to need. I also have to say uh, that I think it is pretty unfair on a lot of young people, because a lot of young people will be paying these taxes effectively so that those that are much better off than them, those with nice properties, can leave an even greater inheritance to their children. There's something, I think, that actually isn't very fair about that, but I get it that lots of middle-class people will say, well, thank goodness, thank goodness, we're not going to lose more than £86,000 of the value of our home if we finish up in care for many, many years. However, it's a broken promise. It won't do this government much good. And it does make me ask questions. I've asked them before about whether this government is even conservative. So keep your opinions coming in. GBviews at gbnews.uk. And also, you can send in your Barrage the Farage questions, which I'll do right at the end of this hour. Some reaction from the audience. Linda on email says, When the manifesto was approved, no one saw this pandemic coming. Everyone on furlough, who had most of their wages paid, shouldn't really complain. We all knew the money would have to be found somewhere. Yeah, Linda, I get it, and that's the argument Boris made in the House of Commons today. Just sometimes putting up taxes doesn't actually increase revenue. It stops entrepreneurial flair. Sean, on email, says to me, Nigel, I'm now past caring what this government does. I'm a born and bred Conservative, but I've long since decided I'll never vote Conservative again. I have heard that from a few people, I must say. Nikki, on Twitter, says, broken manifesto promises are seldom acceptable, particularly when the British taxpayers are funding unprecedented levels of immigration and the NHS are wasting vast amounts on diversity managers. Paul, on email, says... Another nail in the coffin for the self-employed people with limited companies who have had no support from this government during COVID and have had to use savings where possible to live on credit. I absolutely agree with that. This is a government that has no real connection with self-employed people whatsoever. Vincent on email says, Today I cancelled my membership of the Conservative Party. I can no longer find it in myself to support a party that so easily breaks its manifesto commitments. Not once, but twice in a day. Well, that is a perfectly reasonable and fair point. Why not just get rid of HS2? You know, I spoke to a chap this morning. He'd come into London from Stafford in the West Midlands today. The journey time was an hour and 15 minutes. What difference would it make to him if that's 18 or 20 minutes quicker? Get rid of HS2 rather than putting up taxes is what I would rather see. Now, my what the Farage moment. The Taliban has changed since the 1990s, says Boris Johnson. No, he really does. He says they're different from a Taliban of 1996. We must put maximum pressure on them to not to allow the more retrograde elements to have the upper hand. And that is what this government and other governments around the world can do. So we're going to support the good guys in the Taliban. The same Taliban that are murdering people openly in the streets of Afghanistan today, especially those who help the Allies in any way. I, I really wonder what's going on here, although I sense we're very, very close to this government actually recognising the Taliban 
as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. I really do think that, and I sense Biden's administration may do the same thing. So, am I being too cynical? Could Boris be right? Is it a new, woke kind of Taliban? Well, joining me to help answer this is Michael Baker, former CIA covert operations officer and CEO of Portman Square Group, a global intelligence and security firm. Michael, good evening. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me. No, not one bit. So Boris Johnson says there are moderate elements within the Taliban, and if we help and assist them, they can really take over from all the bad guys, and everything is going to be absolutely terrific. What say you? Yeah, there's this narrative that <clears throat> started uh, really surfacing uh, right after the clown show of the uh, execution of the withdrawal uh, of a kinder, gentler Taliban, uh, I think in part is, is a political spin meant to try to distract from uh, the uh, incompetence that was displayed during the course of the, the withdrawal. I, I, you know, hey, great. I think we could all hope that perhaps the Taliban is reformed and will display uh, a, a brand new, uh, you know, face and protocols to the world. I don't believe it. Uh, and I think that uh, we are... Uh, not it's it's not dissimilar. You mentioned the Biden administration, you know, may recognize the Taliban. Yeah. I think that may take some time. But frankly, uh, they're certainly doing everything they can to uh, act as if it's an organization, if it's a government that we can engage in diplomacy with. Uh, so, you know, perhaps we all have to be patient and wait and see. But I'm not buying it. Right. So you've seen no evidence that it's a different Taliban at all. Well, no, I, I don't see any evidence in, the, in their immediate actions in the aftermath of the withdrawal. Uh, I think that they were uh, acting in self-interest uh, during the course of the withdrawal because obviously they knew we were there. Uh, they wanted us out. And so they're smart enough to understand what that meant. That meant uh, you know, expediting the situation by playing ball for a short, short period of time. Uh, now that the, for the most part, the cameras are off of them um, and they've gotten what they want, uh, I, I don't quite see where over here in the U.S., the Biden administration has been talking about all the leverage that we have on the Taliban. Now, frankly, what they're referring to is money. They're talking about frozen assets. Uh, and, you know, I, I just don't, again, based on 20 years of, yeah. uh, of, yeah. of experience watching the Taliban, yeah. I, I don't see that taking place. Uh, and finally, Michael, is there an argument, perhaps, I'm playing devil's advocate here, I really am, but is there an argument here, perhaps, that it may be that we need to work with the Taliban because ISIS are even worse than the Taliban. Well, that's a, it's a yes, you could argue that's a very pragmatic approach. And frankly, if what you do is assume that every nation should act in its own best interests, uh, then from a U.S. perspective, what's our national security interest for Afghanistan at this stage? Well, it's to ensure that Afghanistan isn't used as a training ground, a, a facility to engage in terrorist attacks outside of Afghanistan. If that's the case, in a very narrow definition, then yes, we should hope that the Taliban can maintain some sort of control, can minimize the impact of uh, ISIS and ISIS-K. The problem is that al-Qaeda and the Haqqani network are tied at the hip to the Taliban. You can't really separate those entities. So the idea that somehow our interests will align for any period of time, no. I think is, is pretty far-fetched. No. no, I agree. And trying to pick goodies and baddies in this situation always proves to end badly. Thank you very much indeed, Michael Baker, for joining us. And my other 
What the Farage moment is the Woodland Trust. Now, the Queen has always been very, very keen on forestry. The Queen's Canopy, been a big project, uh, and, you know, in places like Belize, etc., it's there to protect the rainforest. Well, as part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, she's having a massive tree planting programme across the United Kingdom, and it starts this October and goes through to the following October. Um, and it's been spoiled, I'm afraid, because one part of the United Kingdom cannot take part in the Queen's canopy planting project. It's Northern Ireland, and because of the rules, I'm afraid we're not going to be able uh, to get involved. We're really sorry, say the, the Woodland Trust. Recent changes to regulations mean we're currently unable to ship trees to Northern Ireland. So the Woodland Trust, with all their seedlings, can't send them to Northern Ireland. It's yet another reason why the Northern Irish Protocol is even worse than those of us that were sceptical thought, and it needs to go. In a moment, I'll be talking pints with Mike Reed. Well, joining me now is DJ, author and chairman of the British Plant Trust, Mike Reed. Mike, welcome to Talking Pines. <laughs> look at you, look. You've got your own studio. This is wonderful. What have you done? Well, it's great. We turn it into a pub for this part of the show. <laughs> and it kind of works, because rather yeah. than it being an interview, it's a conversation. And, yeah. and that, I think, is the fun part of it. And, and look at me, lightweight shandy. Well, that's all right. Cheers, 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 cheers. We don't force our guests to drink. It's mm -mm. up to them, but I like one. Mm. That's OK. Mike, I think, you know, it was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, Radio 1, the birth of Radio 1, it became this phenomenon, the Radio 1 roadshow that went yeah. out round the country. And I remember, I mean, I went to a couple of Radio <laughs> 1 roadshows, Top of the Pops, which, you know, before the internet and everything else was the kind of must-watch programme. For, I mean, vast numbers. Yeah, they okay. were. I mean, th that was the thing then. There wasn't so much choice, so there were big numbers. I mean, a road show, you get 20, 25, 30,000 people turning up to watch a radio show. Yeah. That's like having a puppet on the radio, really. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, but it was great fun. I mean, and there were big ratings. Saturday morning was 10 million, Pop Quiz was 10 million, Top of the Pops 15, 16 million, but, you know, there wasn't a choice, and it has to be fair, but, I mean, there were big programmes. Yeah, they were. I mean, you were almost like a rock star yourself, in a way. I mean, I, <laughs> you were. I'd you, like to think so, you're no, very flat. You, but you were, because, I mean, you know, these were massive, massive audiences watching it. What was the most fun? Was the road show, Top of the Pops? What was the most fun to do? Oh, God, I love the road shows. I remember my mother calling me up, and she said, you love it, don't you? Roof down, tennis racket guitar in the back, going from town to town, showing off and getting paid for it. And I said... Well, yeah. it doesn't sound too bad to me. <laughs> yeah. That was great fun. I mean, you do, you, you do work hard, though. It doesn't just happen. I mean, it's, you know this. Uh, you know, I do, do breakfast shows now and the, the Heritage Chart Show. You have to roll your sleeves up and work. It doesn't just happen. Like anything, like opening a shop, opening a business, you have to put some effort into it. It doesn't just roll along of its own accord. But Radio 1 itself, I mean, it was just massive, wasn't it? Before commercial radio had really kicked off. It and, was. I, you know, I thought I was just having a good time, Nigel, but I realised latterly I learned stuff. I didn't realise I was. You know, you learn maybe the legalities, you learn what to say, what not to say, how to do it. And, and certainly, if you're on a roadshow, it's, it's a three-part thing. It's teeing up the gag, playing a record, hitting, that, that's the gag, and then the denouement. So the, it was a three-parter. But you couldn't exclude people at home. You know, the whole thing was... 
it's so easy to play to a crowd there when they're in front of you. Yeah. But you mustn't forget the 10 million people at home. Yeah. They have to be included. And you finished up as the, as, as the controller. You were in charge. You were the boss. <laughs> I don't think so. You were a, well, you were in a very senior position at radio, <laughs> weren't you? And involved in a very controversial decision. Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the song Relax. Yeah, yeah. And you were suddenly in the middle of what became a very big national news story. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Paul Morley, the Frankie's manager, quite sensibly, PR-wise... Because you uh, banned the record. You wanted to ban the record, yeah? No, the BBC banned the record. I was employed by the BBC. So they... they ah! Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they banned they, the well, record. I know, it was Mike Reid that decided. I, I well, that's, that's the PR story, but that's, I rolled with it. That's absolutely fine. What it was, my producer got home and he saw the video being... His two daughters were rewinding the video, which was graphic. Let's see, I won't go into detail, but it was graphic. And he came back to me and he said, we can't be anywhere near this. Have you seen the video? And Paul Morley apparently got the director, who I met years later in Cannes, who said, I'm sorry, this is my fault. I was told to do it for the Tube. And then their manager took it to Children's TV, Top of the Pops, Radio 1, um, very cleverly. But no, I think it was a great record. I did the, the voiceover for their next album and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a, you didn't fall out with them as people at all? No, not at all, no. We, I mean, in fact, they went on to make you know, Two Tribes, which I thought was even better, uh, work under the Pleasure Dome, which I absolutely loved. Uh, so no, it was, it was, uh, there was some graphic stuff on the back of the 12-inch. How it emanated really was, on Wednesday morning, we used to do the chart. And there was never enough time to repeat the chart. And I thought, well, if I'm going to drop something, and, and Adrian John is on before me, said, have you seen this cover? And it was something really graphic. I went, oh, OK. And even years later, Trevor Horn said, I didn't know they'd done that, you know. So it was, uh, it was, it was clever PR. And, you know, why not, you know? But beyond being, Mike, beyond being a TV presenter and a DJ, you know, I got to know you because you supported the campaign for us to leave the European Union. You felt it very strongly. Um, and I think you took some stick within, within, within your own industry for putting it. Well, as we say, you know, everyone can have their own point of view or their own, their own opinion, uh, whether it's right, whether other people think it's right, whether people think it's wrong. Uh, and I've always said that, you know, someone could disagree with somebody, but you defend their right to have an opinion. Um, to rip people Voltaire, apart yeah. for an opinion, it's like saying, you know, you support one football team as... Your opinion is not going to sway someone else to support your football team or indeed go to your church. You know, your religion is your religion and that's fine. And you accept somebody else as having theirs. That's the, the tolerant way of doing it. I mean, now, you know, we get people trying to wrestle with the past. And, and, and as, uh, you know, Omar Khayyam says, you know, the moving finger, right, and having rip moves on. You know, if you try wrestling with race from the past, and we've all created misdemeanors, whichever country it is down the years, you know, you're wrestling with a ghost, because, and you're never going to win. Because history is a big thing with you, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you write books, the British Plaque Trust. Tell us a bit about, I mean... I know that you love history and you're, and you're busy writing books about London right at the moment. Share some of that with us. Yeah, I'm doing a, a series of six books on a thousand years of a London street. Uh, there aren't too many. Uh, so when you look at uh, Downing Street, you could just about get away with it. But then again, uh, there's been a great book on prime ministers by Anthony Selsden. So it, it would be a book on prime ministers. So maybe you, you'd leave Downing Street. I did Denmark Street, uh, which is out at the moment. I'm just proofing Cheapside which is in a phenomenal history, really. That's been there since Roman times and beyond. And uh, nearly finished Piccadilly, uh, which is a fascinating <laughs> street. I just love the, the history anyway and the history of London. And I, I'm looking at three more streets that might work for a 1,000. I've had to stretch Piccadilly a little bit 
It doesn't quite stretch back a thousand years, but it was a trackway. And who knows who went down this trackway? <laughs> it could have been. So, so. so it's a little bit of stretching, but it's great fun and great history because you're walking through a door and you're going back through the centuries. You know, you walk through a door, who was here then? And then, and then. And it's fascinating. But it could be, Mike, a lot of these characters you're writing about from the past are those that now many would want to cancel, to remove, to... I mean, does your book... Is your book... Are your books going to be covered in warnings? <laughs> Everything's covered in a warning now. Life is the warning, <laughs> isn't it? Beware, you are living. Um, uh, no, I mean, they're just... Who was there was there. Uh, Piccadilly, you know, you had highwaymen, you know, you had Charles Dickens, you had Queen Victoria, you had all the people living at Albany... Uh, we're an extraordinary bunch of characters. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's the people that were there were there. Um, you know, with Denmark Street, uh, you have people like Zoffany, the artist whose paintings now sell for 10, 12, 15 million maybe, uh, came over and was painting clocks for a few pennies in Denmark Street. And Lord Wharton, who owned the land that the street was built on, uh, wrote the words for Lily Valero. So it's always been musical. If you go out to 1100, uh, Matilda, Queen Matilda, created a leper hospital there. And I think her musician, her minstrel, Rahir, who built St Bartholomew's, of course, who had the vision, um, played there. So it's been musical for nearly a thousand years. <laughs> and the British Park Trust, again, history. You're wanting to bring or recognise history from the past. Yeah, it's recognising people who have made a unique contribution to the country in one way or another, in science, medicine, sport, whatever it is, politics, whatever it is. Um, and, it, yeah, it has to be something unique or a unique event, a unique moment, a unique achievement. Uh, and that's good. Yeah, a lot of people come through and say, what about so-and-so? And we weigh it up and have a look at it. And sometimes they spend a day going and looking at a house and another house. Is this going to work? Some people might want a plaque. Some people might not. They always say, will it add to the value of the house? Always, Am I responsible for it? So what sort of people have you brought, brought to life with this? Oh, gosh. I mean, all sorts. I mean, we did uh, BBC, asked me for BBC Music Day three years ago, have you got any ideas? And I said, well, we're, we're low on musical uh, people. So we formed 40 committees around the country, and we had a national committee, and I wrote about 30,000 words for all the BBC local stations and said, you know, OK, read the, your bit out on air. Yep. People will come up with other ideas. I said, you come up with your top three and send it to us as the national committee, and we'll do it. So we did it all on the BBC Music Day, that one, which was... Uh, no, you, I mean, you're very, very busy, you're very absorbed, but you're also, Mike, you're someone that cares a lot about politics and the country and the way in which it's run. And, you know, you've been involved with the Conservative Party, been involved with me, with UKIP, etc. How's Boris Johnson doing? It's difficult to know. I look at it because I'm not as involved as you, obviously. Um, I look at it from the point of view of what I'm doing. And one of the main things I do is, is writing songs. And songwriters are having a really, really, really hard time at the moment. Uh, they're up against the YouTubes. Now, YouTube in the second quarter this year made seven billion. In the second quarter, that's nearly 30 billion in a year, uh, or around 30 billion in a year. The songwriters are getting nothing. Yeah. If you want to show somebody your song, you've got to wade through two ads for which they're getting paid. The songwriters are getting next to nothing. Uh, our songwriters are really, really suffering. Um, the record companies will always tell you that it's buoyant. And it's buoyant because they are the giant whale that's opening its mouth and swallowing a hell of a lot of plankton. The smaller guys can't get that much plankton What in. can Boris do about that? Well, I think you could be stronger on... It's, it's difficult whether he can do anything, but there is a European copyright directive, um, yeah, which, this, yeah. which I, I think really sometimes they play hardball because it's like, well, 
if you don't want to play with us, we won't play with you. So they, they can play hardball. Um, if they move that directive and organise it properly, it will be much easier for our musicians, our songwriters. Um, but it's very difficult because they're, they're tied in with the Googles, the YouTubes, yeah. the big boys. It's David and Goliath. Until somebody has a slingshot that's going to work, uh, then it's, it's a tricky one for our musicians and our, and our songwriters. They're, they're really, really struggling. You know? yeah. And I, I think if someone was stronger about the directive. How you do that, I don't know how but we're, you tackle but, but we're Brexit Britain. We can make our own decisions now, can't we? Uh, well, somebody should be, should be strong and tough uh, about it. And I'm sure they have been. I mean, they've been to European commissions and our people have been there representing that, you know, it's, it's difficult. Again, it's difficult to wrestle with someone that doesn't want to wrestle. And, and it just, it potters on in its own way. I don't think they've, they've taken the directive and, and made a point of actually following it to the letter of the law. Uh, so, of course, our musicians and writers are, are suffering from that point of view. But I say, it's very difficult. You get the big boys, the Googles, in the pocket of the politicians and the YouTubes. You know, how do you get around that? No, it's very difficult. And finally, Mike, the Her tell us about the heritage charts. Oh, the heritage chart. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, a year ago, a lot of the, the artists said to me, we're not getting a fair crack of the whip on uh, radio uh, songs. We're still making some of the best music we've ever made, but we're not getting played on the radio. Uh, so I thought, OK, uh, we'll start the Heritage Chart. And now we have the website up, people can vote. It's an innovative thing because before that was just sales, which became streaming, which challenged the Heritage Artists. Uh, and now we get every week votes from over 80 countries around the world. Uh, and then the chart goes out on a Sunday and it goes out around the world now. So it's, it's building. But it's great for Heritage Artists because they are still making and still writing great music, but were feeling very, very frustrated. And your favourite musical artist of all time? Uh, my favourite singer of all time, I think, probably Scott Walker. OK. Mike Reed, thank you for joining me on Talking Pie. Cheers. Very good. Cheers. And now it's time for the last part of the show, Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions, which, of course, I do not see until I read them out live on air. Sajay on Twitter asks me, when are you going to step into the void left in politics with everyone running to the left? Oh, thank you. It's so kind of you to ask me questions like this. Um, look, we've got a Conservative government, a small state, low-tax Conservative government who are very tough on border controls. Oh, no, we haven't, have we? Um, well, let's see. Look, I spent a quarter of a century uh, pursuing... Uh, politics, much of it leading political parties. I had one major, major goal in my mind, which was to get the independence of our nation back. We've done that. The trouble is, we're not using that independence very well. So I'm having a rest at the moment, all right? On email, one viewer asked, anonymous, uh, would you rather have a pint with Boris Johnson or Priti Patel? I don't know that Priti Patel is a pint drinker. Uh, I do suspect after what I've been saying about her performance as Home Secretary, she wouldn't particularly want to have a pint with me. Um, look, you know what? I don't dislike either of them. I genuinely don't. Uh, you know, I first met Boris a long, long time ago, back in the early 1990s, uh, and I have always thought Priti Patel was a really good thing for the Conservative Party. Uh, it's just that she's over-promised and under-delivered as Home Secretary. So, on balance, it would have to be pretty. I'd have a drink with... Uh, even though I've said some very tough things about her. Pauline, on email, says, Do you like to cook? If so, what's your favourite meal? I love to cook. I do. And I, 
I'm a keen angler, right? I like fishing, I like sea fishing, used to do a bit more fly fishing, and I like to cook things that I've eaten. And dare I say it, although there's bound to be absolute uproar about this, but I also do go shooting, and I'm quite happy to pluck and dress and cook things that I've shot. And please don't bother to complain, because you're not going to change my mind. And finally, Nigel, on a lighter note, do you always use the same tailor? No, I don't, actually. And I've got to collect some suits this week, because I've lost so much weight during lockdown. How about that? 